All right, we're gonna get started. One of the last, uh, I guess, like subsection of the doctrine of God. I'm very excited to get to week three because personally, uh, teaching doctrine of God is really hard. <laughs> and I'm like, my mind already hurts thinking about today's lesson. Um, but it will be good. We're getting to doctrine of man next week. So we'll be talking a lot about ourselves, about human nature, about sin. Um, just about, you know, ourselves as psychosomatic beings, all these different things. So it'll be good. So please keep coming up, coming through, and we'll just keep trucking on with our doctrine class. Let me pray for us, and we will begin. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. Um, we know that it is a very unique time in our country. We know that many things are going on around us, that there is a lot of talk, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of elation, um, and we don't know the outcome of what will happen tonight or tomorrow. Uh, we don't know who will be the president. We don't know these things for sure. Um, but one thing we do know is that, God, you are sovereign, and that, that those who are in power, that even the president of our country is only put in place because you sovereignly decree it, God. And we believe that you are wise, that your ways are higher than ours, your thoughts are higher than ours. And Father, we, we pray that as a church, that as Christians, that as the church, um, that our hope would not lie in anything less than the sovereign ruling and the sovereign um, leadership of God. That Lord, at the end of the day, um, you will um, see what you decree, that it will come to pass. So we trust in you. We trust in your power. We trust in your wisdom. And we trust that you will sustain your church. And Father, we pray that the outcome of, of this very big season in America, that the outcome would be the one that brings you the most glory and the outcome that um, strengthens and edifies the church in the, most, uh, in, in, the, in the best way possible, Father. So we thank you and we pray that as, although there may be, may be many things on our mind, we pray you would help us to just focus now um, and just get ready to dive once again into the mystery of, of you, of who you are, God, that you are one God and three persons. We pray you would help us. And <clears throat> Father, we pray you would help us to remember that we are creatures, um, that we are small, that we are finite, and yet we are privileged to have this knowledge of you. And yet help us to be submissive. Help us to yield and to know and to believe that these things are true because you have spoken them in your word. So give us insight. Give us, um, just give us the strength and the faith to believe these things, God. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So if you turn, if you're joining us for the first time online, everyone here has been here. If you're joining us online, if you look at the Facebook link again at the bottom, there's a link to print out Unit 2 material. Uh, if you do need Unit 1, if you joined us late and you want the material, please just message me, richardhan at qpam.org, and I can get all that to you. It's not a problem. Um, but if you are following along, we are on Section 3. We, last week, we talked about the attributes of God. We talked about the communicable, incommunicable attributes. And today, we are finishing off with the triunity of God. We're going to talk about the Godhead, the triune God that we believe in. Now, I want to start with this quote. If you look at the section, the first quote, this is a quote by Sinclair Ferguson. He says this, the rather obvious thought, that when his disciples were about to have the world collapse in on them, our Lord spent so much time in the upper room speaking to them about the mystery of the Trinity. 
And of course, Dr. Ferguson is referring to, in scripture, we can find ourselves in places like John 17. And Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room. It is moments, nights before his crucifixion, before his arrest, betrayal, and all these things. And as one of the final things that Jesus talks about with his disciples, face to face with them before his death, is especially in John 17 in the high priestly prayer, Jesus talks about the mystery of the Trinity. He says things like, I and the Father are one. I and him. And then me, all these different things. And that's something we need to consider, right? In Jesus' life, very few moments before he died, before he was arrested, before, you know, Good Friday and all these things, Jesus speaks intentionally to talk about the mystery of the triune God, of which he is one of the, he is the second person. As we keep going along, there's a quote next by St. Augustine. He says, in no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or the discovery of truth more profitable. And that is a quote that I want to kind of put out there as I teach this lesson. Um, by no means am I like an expert on Trinitarian theology. You know, I know very basic and beyond what I've studied. So even as I teach this, like I said, my mind has been um, really worked and it's been very mind-bending in the words of Pastor Nate as we've been talking about it. And it, it, it's a lot. And I'm going to say, as I said last week, um, what I'm trying to do with this last unit before we move on is I'm not trying to um, simplify the mystery. You can't simplify the triune God, right? Maybe you've heard analogies about how to think about the Trinity, right? One of the most recent ones in honor of like our times and millennials was I've heard God compared to like a fidget spinner, right? It's like one thing and then there's like three parts to it. And then when you spin it, it looks like one thing. Okay, that is, I'm sorry, if you like that analogy, that is not a good analogy. <laughs> it falls horribly short. And sometimes, like I was saying last week, more than saying what things are, all we can really say is what they are not. Does that make sense? And our concern with God when we speak of God is we want to speak correctly, right? We don't want to fancy God for someone that he is not. So I know that there will be a lot of places where we get stuck. And I want to just give this as a disclaimer, as a fair warning. It happens. But the goal of tonight, okay, the goal of tonight is not for us to dive into the doctrine of the Trinity and understand every single functioning, working part of it. That's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. But our goal of tonight is to just pinpoint and identify the mystery that is the triune God and lay it out. And that's it. That's all we can do. We want to look at scripture. We want to look at systematic theology. We want to identify the mystery. We want to present it. And I believe that when we come face to face with that, especially within the bounds of scripture, it will lead us to awe, to reverence, and to worship. So that's, that's what we're going for here. So we're going to get into this. Um, Again, this is going to be tough. And if you have questions, please write them down. I know we haven't been getting questions after class or even during the week. But if you have questions, please write them down so the moment does not pass us by. So first, we're going to talk about the doctrine of the Trinity. If you look at your notes, there's a nice little picture. And we're going to start here. The doctrine of the Trinity. To put it very, very uh, simply, as straightforward as I can, the Bible reveals that there is one God 
And this one God reveals himself in three persons, right? Now, if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard about the Trinity, the triune God, the Godhead. Um, the Trinity is actually a term that we would allocate to systematic theology, right? If you remember, systematic theology is when we study the Bible in terms of topics, right? Not, not like the historical following of the, of the you know, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. But systematic theology is when we look at the entire whole of biblical history, biblical theology, and then we try to break them down into topics. So in systematic theology, the Trinity is, I would say, of prime importance. And this is important because you don't see the word Trinity in the Bible. You will never find anywhere in the Bible that talks about Trinity, Holy Trinity, the Trinitarian God, the Triune God. You won't see those words. And yet, from the early church on to now, we have referred to God always as three in one, right? As one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And if you've grown up in church, you know the Trinity, even though you weren't taught the Trinity, right? When you were baptized, what were you baptized then? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then if you know about your own salvation, you were saved not just by Jesus Christ, the Son, but you were saved by the entire Trinity. Right? It's the Father who elects, Ephesians 1. It's the Son who comes and redeems by shedding His blood. And it's the Holy Spirit who applies that redemption to your life. Right? So whether you knew it or not, all of our faith is Trinitarian. It involves the activity and the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about Trinity again, I'm not going to give you a proof text that says the Trinity was here, the Trinity made. As we scour the Bible, we'll find that that's what it is. So let's look at this. The doctrine of the Trinity can be summarized in seven statements. There's this neat little picture, okay? And we're going to go through it. This is important. We're going to go through this, okay? Seven statements, and we're going to summarize this. I believe this was Kevin DeYoung, very helpful. And the picture is very helpful as well. First, there is only one God. That's good. Two, the Father is God. Three, the Son is God. Four, the Holy Spirit is God. Five, the Father is not the Son. Six, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. And seven, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. Okay? There's going to be many places tonight where you will say, I get it. I get what Pastor Richard is saying. Or I get it. I get the concept. And we're going to pause there most times. But on this first run through, I just want to make sure we understand what is being laid down for us. So again, if you want to stop me, if you can love you, you can stop me on the Zoom. That's fine. Okay, please just look at that, that picture. Okay, it's very important that we understand what it's saying. What we are saying is that there is only one God. Right? We are monotheistic. We are not polytheistic. There is only one God. And yet, we say that three persons are that one God. We say the Father is God. We say the Son is God. And we say the Holy Spirit is God. But we do not say that those three persons are one another. We say that they are all God equally. And yet, we do not say that the Father is the Son or the Son is the Spirit, or the Spirit is the Father. Now, let's talk about what this means. You, you can go to the next page. 
It says we must defend and safeguard each one of these statements without denying any of the other six. Meaning, if you lose one of these seven, you will lose the biblical understanding of the Trinity, which is the biblical understanding of God. And we're going to get to why the Trinity is important. Bless you. (laughs) We're going to get to that, why it's important as we go along. Okay, again, we have to defend and safeguard. We must maintain each one of these statements without denying any of of the other six. Let's move on. It says, now this is the Catholic faith. This is from the Athanasian Creed. It says, now this is the Catholic, if you remember, that just means creedal or orthodox. This is the faith that we worship. Let's, let's write this down, or you could just highlight. We worship one God, okay, in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. So I'm going to write down some terms. We have the word persons and essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. Now what does that mean? Okay, We're getting into a lot of stuff. I want to kind of simplify. The faith that we hold, we believe that there is one God who is three, Okay, that's what it means, in Trinity. And those three persons are one. There's unity, right? And somehow, the mystery is that those three persons are united and they are one, but they are not blended. They do not become one another. They don't carry over properties into the next, and they all share the same essence. And it says, for the Father is a distinct person, the Son is a distinct person, and the Holy Spirit is a distinct person person and yet all three persons they share the same essence they share the same divinity and their glory is equal and so is their majesty now what does that mean let's actually break down these terms and we're going to sort of get into it here okay so what does it mean persons these are two important terms in understanding the trinity person and essence, okay? If you read, it's right there. What is person? When we talk about person, are we talking about like I am a person, you are a person? Eh, Yes and no. What it simply means is that a person is a particular individual who is distinct from the others, okay? That's what we mean. We're gonna get into a different word right after, but let's go to essence next. Essence, okay, this is a helpful, it just means godness. The essence of God, of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is the divine essence. That is the essence we do not have. What essence do we have? We share in what? The human essence, right? We are human. God does not have that human essence. Of course, in Christ, that's something else. But God has the divine essence, okay? And that's what we mean when we say essence. Think Godness. All three persons share the same Godness, meaning there is no one who is more divine than the rest. It's not like the Father is 60% God, and then the Son is 20%, and then the Spirit's 20%. What this is saying is the Father is 100% the divine essence, the Son is 100% the divine essence, and the Spirit is also 100% the divine essence. Another word for person, which is more um, orthodox, what we've seen in history, is this word subsistence. 
Now let me do my best to explain what this means. A subsistence is just, it, it connotes a mode of existence. So I am a subsistence of the human essence, right? Meaning the human essence, which is what does it mean to be human? It means to have reasonable mind and a body, indestructible soul, all these things. The human essence can subsist in many ways. It can subsist, it can subsist in Richard Hahn. Right? It can subsist in Levy or High Lin. We are subsistences of the one essence. And that is actually the same word that we're using when we're talking about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Right? There are, it's a word that's used to indicate the mode, of the, the mode of existence for the divine essence. So we're using this word persons or subsistence to talk about how does this one essence exist? Does that make sense? I know it probably won't make sense, but again, I just want you to get the bare concepts. So if I could put it simply, I'm going to say that a lot because that's really all we can get to. There is one God, but there is more than one who is this one God. Think about that. There is only one God, but there is more than one who is this one God. And who is that more than one? Three persons or three subsistences, meaning that this divine essence exists in three different persons. Now, what is this practically? Practically, how do we see this? Think about this. When, when you pray, dear God, who are you praying to? Think about that. You say, dear, when you go to sleep or you eat, dear God, thank you for this food. Who did you thank? Did you thank the Father? Or the Son? Or the Spirit? Have you ever thought about that? Do you intentionally think that? Sometimes when I pray, I specifically pray to the Holy Spirit. I say, Spirit of God, can you blah, 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 blah. But sometimes we just pray, dear God, right? So there is something, and, and let me read this quote for us, which is really great. Uh, Calvin, he, I think he takes this from someone, he says this, I cannot think on the one without quickly being encircled by the splendor or of the three. Nor can I discern the three without being carried back to the one. And if you are in a relationship or you are getting to know the God of Scripture, this is what we will see. You will relate and even pray to one God, but as you read the scriptures and you get to know this God more, you will find that when you think and pray to that one God, you can't help but think about three persons. And when you try to think about God as three persons, you can't help but think about those three persons as the one God. So when we speak indefinitely about God, like just saying, dear God, we're speaking more about the essence of God, just in general. Right? God as one, the divine essence. But now when we talk about distinctions, right? when we're talking about who saved you, who created you, there are different distinctions brought in. So would it be correct to say, God died for me? What do we think? I'm not going to do a raise of hands thing. I know sometimes it's like scrutinizing. Would it be correct to say, God died for you? Eh. 
What about, what about this? The father died for you. Would that be correct? No. Because the father didn't die for you, right? We would say what? The son died for you. We wouldn't say the spirit died for you, right? In the same way, we would say, who chose you to be predestined to eternal life? Not the spirit, not the son, but the father, right? In the same way, who applies redemption to you? The spirit of God, right? That's what we find in the Bible. So again, getting back to this, this is the idea that there is one God. And in this one God, there is only one divine essence. That is it. And somehow, I don't know if the word somehow is right, but this one God, in which there is only one divine essence, this one God reveals himself in the Bible as three different distinct persons, and yet, all three of those persons completely exhaust and have, and they are, the one divine essence. That's what I'm going to lay down. I was talking with Pastor Nate before, and then I was like, what about that? And then we both said, that's facts. That's what it is. This is just what the Bible gives us. There is one God who reveals himself as three persons, and although those three persons are distinct from one another, that the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, those three persons share this one undivided, simple, divine essence. So that's what we're laying down, okay? So persons is important, essence is important, and this will lead us to understanding the triune God. Now, I'm going to kind of like maybe build on, build on this a little bit more, and I want to give us actually something that should be helpful. And let's think about, when we think about the Trinity, we have those seven truths. Let's, let's make it a little more simple. Let's, let's talk about three foundational truths that we want to hold about the Trinity. Okay, Three foundational truths, and a lot of this is from... Um, one of the doctors, the professors that I talked about last week, very helpful. And he talks about these three foundational truths as actually a three-stranded cord. Or three-strand cord. Let's just do that. Three-strand cord. Meaning, you can't lose any of these strands. Okay? You can't take one away or else the cord will break. And here they are. One, we must affirm the oneness of God. Okay? First, we must affirm the oneness of God. We're going to talk about these a little more specifically right after. Two, this isn't in your notes, so please write it down if you'd like. Two, we must retain and affirm the distinction of the three. Okay? The oneness of God, the distinction of the three, and third, we must affirm the co-equality and the co-eternity of the three. This is the three-strand cord that we do not want to break, and we cannot break or we lose the biblical conception and understanding of God. So bear with me. We're going to get to why that matters, okay? Let's, let's go over this very, very quickly. What do we mean by the oneness of God? I said it already, we want to affirm that there is only one 
true God. There's plenty of proof text for that. Deuteronomy 6.4, right? There is one God. The Lord is one. There is only one true God. We are monotheistic, right? You might hear this and say, oh, there's three persons who are all divine. That means we have three gods. No, that would make us polytheistic. That's what we call tritheism. We don't want that. We believe in monotheism, that there is one God. And yet, we believe that there is a distinction of the three. That scripture identifies this one God as three persons who are distinct from one another. And back to this word of persons, what we believe is that, that these three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, that they subsist. I, I don't want to use the word exist. I don't know if that's the right word, but biblical orthodoxy, we use the word subsist. That is a mode of existence that these three persons subsist as the one God. And not that they are participating in the essence, right? That's not all it is. It's not like, like in eternity past, there's like a divine essence and there's three beings and they all grab a hold of it, right? That's not what it is. If any of you like, I'm just, this is going off trail, but like there was a show back in the day called Dragon Tales. I used to watch that. That thing is bomb. And then Max and Emmy, they would take out the scale. Some of y'all laughing because I know you love, I know you still watch it now, like in secret on YouTube and stuff. Not that I did, but they all touch it together, right? They put their hand on it and then they say the little chant, right? Firewood dragons that land apart. It's not like the three persons are in eternity past and then they found this like treasure chest with a divine essence and they all bah, touched it at the same time and then it's split into 33.333% and then they share it. That's not what's happening. We believe that three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, they subsist as the one God and they are not just participating in the essence or sharing the essence, but they are the divine essence. Meaning the Father is God. Exhaustively, He is the divine essence. The Father is God and the Son is God and the Spirit is God. So we want to distinguish the three while maintaining the one. And lastly, this is kind of what I was talking about, the co-equality and co-eternity of the three. What we mean is that they are co-equal and co-eternal in their divinity. That there is not one who is more God or more divine than the other. And what we're finding in the Bible, like, I, like I've been saying, the one true God is offering himself to us in three persons. Again, this doesn't mean that there are three gods. That is the heresy of tritheism. It also doesn't mean that there is one essence that is dis divided into three persons. No, rather the essence of God, the divine essence, is what we talked about, simple and undivided, so that the Father, Son, and Spirit, they are all co-equally God. Okay, it's not the Father, Son, and spirit, and they sh like have different percentages, right? 33, 33, 33. They're all 100% the divine essence. That's crucial. That's crucial. We don't, we don't, we don't want to reduce or downplay the divinity of any of the three persons. They are all 100% the divine essence. Okay, does that make sense? Yes, somewhat. And let me read again from the Athanasian Creed somewhere else in the Athanasian, Athanasian Creed. It says, we worship one God, okay, 
In Trinity, and Trinity in Unity, again, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, yet they are not three gods, but one God. I know. I know. It's crazy. Let me, let me say this as we cap off this section. The mystery, like I said, what we're trying to do, we're trying to identify the mystery. This is the mystery, okay? This is all, all the mystery. And like I said, if you're sitting here and you're saying, eh, sounds like a bit crazy, but I get it. That's a great place to be. Now, on top of that, if you're saying, this is confusing, or this is like a little too mysterious, then you're in the right place. And my job is not to flip over the board and say, here's the simple version. This is the simple version. This is all we have. This is laid out for us in the scriptures. I can give us proof text later. There are some, as we're going to go into. But this is what we have in the scripture. This is the God that we worship. This is the God that we worship. There is true distinction. True distinction. There is a distinct personhood in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and yet there is an, an essential unity amongst the three in that they all share and participate in the divine essence. And hear this, it says, the mystery, the, what is the mystery? If I could give it to you in a sentence, the mystery that transcends all rational comprehension is that each person exhausts and is the one essence, substance of God. And yet, although they are the same essence, they do not lose their distinction. They're separate. They're still distinct. And yet, somehow, they are so united that we refer to them as one. Now, I have some analogies that I've been working on all day, and I'm not going to give any of them. Because if anything, they're more confusing. And that's sometimes where we get to with the Trinity. All I can tell you is what I've just told you. That each person exhausts and is the essence, the one essence of God. And yet, although they are so united, they do not lose their distinctions. They remain as three distinct persons. If you look at these proof texts first, God is one. Isaiah 44, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. There's one, I, right? First person, singular. Deuteronomy 6, 4, I said this earlier, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And yet, if we go to point three, God is also three. Colossians 2, 9, 10, For in Him, the whole fullness of deity, of course, it's talking about Christ, dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, there we go, there's a son, who through the eternal spirit, there's the spirit, offered himself without blemish to God. Speaking about the Father, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And again, I want to recap and just really drive this home for us. Because honestly, the content is, this is most of what it is. That within the one true God, there is true distinction and there is diversity. How can we say, let's say me and Levi, right? We are, to use our language, orthodox language, we are subsistences of the one human nature, right? 
all of us here, all of us in this room, we are different modes of existence for the one human nature. We share that in common. So we are diverse, right? We are distinct from one another. But would you ever say that we have perfect essential unity? No. We wouldn't say that, right? Even, would you say that you, I, I exist and Levy is also one of my existences? And that we exist together in perfect harmony? No. That's what, Levy's probably weirded out by that, right? That's, no, we don't believe that. And this is what we're seeing in the difference between us and God. And this distinction that we are seeing, it must be contemplated because, like I was saying earlier, we don't want to just say all the time, God, 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 God is one. We want to be clear and understand that there are distinctions even in the Bible. Again, we don't want to say the Father is the Son or the Son is the Spirit. We don't want to say that. Even within redemption. We're going to talk about this right after. We're going to talk about even within redemption, the three persons, they are all 100% God. They are all sharing and participating in the same divine essence, yet they have different roles and work. Right? All while maintaining the unity of their oneness in their threeness. Right? Jesus even says in the Gospels, He says, all I can do is what I see my Father doing. And Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He says these things. And he is making claims about this essential unity. And yet, when we see Jesus on the earth, we wouldn't say, there is the Father. And this is the mystery we're going to get into. Because there is this relationship. This, we would call it an interpenetrating relationship between the three persons, which shows their unity. Now, I want to give a quick little... Um, I guess, caveat and speak about, oh, this, mark, this thing is not working too well today. Let's see if it works over here. I want to talk about actually different names that we will call the Trinity. I'm going to just erase this. And, and there are, of course, like we were talking about last week, we can talk about God in terms of theology proper. I'm going to leave this. This black marker is too powerful. It will not be erased. We are going to speak about God is the Trinity, the triune God. But I want to make a quick side note. In our human perspective, right, as creatures, we refer to God most often in terms of his work in creation and redemption, right? When is the last time you thought about God in his relation only within the Trinity? Like, when's the last time you prayed and you contemplated the, the existence and the internal life of God. No, most often when we pray, we thank the Father for being sovereign, for creating us. We thank the Son for paying, our, paying for our sins. We thank the Spirit for leading us and guiding us, helping us to walk in sanctification, right? So when we, when we talk about the Trinity, most times, we're actually referring to what in theology we refer to as the economic Trinity, this is a term you might not have heard before, and we're going to breeze through it, but it's, it's very simple. We're talking about the economic trinity. When we talk about the economic trinity, we're talking about God in relation to his work in creation and redemption. Sorry, my handwriting is getting worse and worse. 
Again, economic trinity, we're talking specifically about God in relation to his redemptive work and his work as our creator. So when we talk about Jesus dying for our sins, we are thinking and referring to the economic trinity. When we think about the Holy Spirit who lives within us, that makes us temples of the living God, we are talking about, yes, the triune God, yes, one of the persons of the Trinity, but we're thinking about that in terms of the economic Trinity. When we think about God as the Creator, the Father is the one who speaks in the beginning and all things come into formation. We're, again, talking about the economic Trinity. We're talking about God specifically in how He relates to creation and redemption. But if you remember last week, I said, that's not the only way we should think about God. As if God exists just for our creation and redemption. Right? That would be very us-centered. That the only conception we have of God is how God caters to us and loves us and saves us. But we said last week that God has life apart from us. That there is an inner life to God that we will never know. This life of God we can know because he reveals himself in history and space and time. But last week we talked about the relationship of the Trinity, right? John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What we believe is that even before Christ became incarnate and put on flesh, that the second person of the Trinity existed, and he was with God, and he was God. And that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they have existed from eternity past. When we talk about eternity, we're not talking about time. That's just the mode of God's, God, God's existence. That the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they exist outside of this work in creation and redemption. So when we talk about this, we're talking about the economic trinity, and we've said this word before, when we talk about God in His being, we're talking about the ontological trinity. Ontology meaning the study of being, right? So when we're talking about God's divine essence and his distinct three persons, we're not talking about God as, you know, just the redeemer or the creator. We're talking about who is God in his very being. And this is a quick distinction, an important distinction I want to make because we can't only think about God in relation to us, right? Not that it's selfish per se, but when we only think about God in relation to us, about how he makes us and sustains us and saves us, then what we're doing is we are perceiving God and receiving God as a God who, in a sense, exists not just for us, but only in relation to us. As if God was lonely in the Trinity, that he was lonely and he needed someone to love, so he made Adam and Eve. Or as if God had a, a man-shaped hole in his heart, and that's why he needed to make us. No. And that's why we have this concept of the ontological trinity. We talk about God completely separate from work and redemption and creation to remind us that God is self-sufficient. Right? We learned that last week. He exists apart from creation. And yet, the good news is that in his overflowing love and joy, he enters into time and space, right? He enters covenant with us and through Christ, so on and so forth. So this is just a, a small note. We will get into it more as we go along our unit. And let's finish off here with just why then the Trinity matters. And you might think, that's it? That's all we got? That's, that's all we got. There are other things we could talk about. 
I'm not going to list them because right now we don't have time. I don't want to just give out new phrases. But there are many other things about the Trinity we can get into. What I've shared with us tonight is just the basic bare bones of what we believe about the triune God. And now, I think the obvious question is, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Why do we have to know this like specific stuff that like, you know, God exists in one, one undivided essence and there is one God and he exists in three persons. Why does any of this matter? And I want to give you some reasons before we actually get into some heresies against the Trinity. And then hopefully we will definitely see why it matters. The first reason why getting the Trinity right really matters, and it's important for us to um, relate and understand God as a triune God, one God, three persons, is because God is God. That's the first reason. Because, because God is God, it should be our priority to, like we've been saying, to represent Him accurately and to know Him for who He truly is. And this goes back to our point uh, from Charm's question a few weeks ago, right? N that point of, can you truly love someone that you don't know? And of course the answer is no, you cannot. You can't love someone that you don't truly know. So getting the Trinity right is important because we want to get God right, right? Our goal, hopefully, as Christians should be to know God. That's why Jesus says in John 17, this is eternal life. It is what? To know God, the knowledge of God. And that starts with understanding who He is in His very being, in His life, in His inner life, who He is in relation to work and creation, all these things. We're getting a bigger picture of who God is. Can we know Him truly? Yes. Can we know Him exhaustively? No, right? We talked about that, the incomprehensibility of God. Dr. Fred Sanders, he says this, It makes no sense to ask what the point of the Trinity is or what the purpose the Trinity serves. Because the Trinity isn't for anything beyond itself, because the Trinity is God. That's so simple, right? And he's basically saying, there's no point of asking questions like, how is the Trinity practical? And sure, there is, and we're going to get into those. But before you ask all those things, you can't start with, how is the Trinity practical for our church? Or how is the Trinity practical for our lives? We have to start with the fact that the Trinity is God, and that's why it's practical for us to learn these things. Because we are learning about God. About who He is. Who He truly is. And again, not just... Sunday school level, God is my Father, Jesus is my Savior, the Holy Spirit is my Comforter. All those things are true, but understanding that there is God apart from just what we know in war, in creation and redemption. And we want to dig deeper and deeper. Of course, like I've been saying, there is a stop. There is a ceiling. And that's what we call the mystery. There's a place we can't really invade or get into. But as Christians, we do want to make it our goal to know God truly. Now two, why does getting the Trinity right, why does it matter? I said this last week because if you don't get the Trinity right, then you won't understand the nature of your salvation. If you don't understand that God is a triune community, that there are three persons living in perfect unity, sharing in the same essence, there is love and joy and peace and all these things flowing within the Godhead itself then you might be tempted to think that God created us because He was lonely or because He was bored 
or because he needed a project to work on. Right? That's the kind of thinking that flows from a wrong understanding of God's triunity. And in the same way, it, it helps us to avoid this, this fallacy that God saved us because he needed to feel complete. A lot of people have that, that thought, like God must have saved us because he's just jealous and he's hungry for our worship. And that's what we might think. But no, God is completely self-sufficient, self-contained within the ontological trinity, within the Godhead itself. God is completely sufficient. He does not need you or I. And helping us, when we understand that, we understand the nature of salvation itself. That we are saved not because God, like I said before, had a man-shaped hole in his heart, but we are saved because God within himself is overflowing with love and joy. And as a result of that, we are saved. Right? It also helps us understand the way that salvation occurs. We think about the Great Commission. Right? Jesus says himself to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What we understand there, even if you've been to baptisms, you've been baptized yourselves, we understand that salvation is a Trinitarian act. Again, it's not just like the Son comes down to heaven and the Father says, it's game time, go to work. No, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, all three persons of the Trinity are involved in our salvation. They're involved in evangelism. Right? Like we said before, it is the Father who chooses the elect. And it's not the Father who comes and dies. No, the Son comes and dies. He puts on flesh. He comes. He dies. He redeems the elect. And then it is now the Spirit who applies this redemption to us. Fourthly, understanding the Trinity will help us understand what we see in Scripture as well. Right? Think about Jesus' baptism. You, again, like I said, you're not going to find the word Trinity in your Bible, but we see the Trinity all the time. In Genesis 1 to, 1 to 2, the Father is what? Speaking. Colossians 1 tells us that the Son is creating and the Spirit is there hovering over the waters, the chaotic waters, and making everything beautiful. Right? Think about Matthew 3, the baptism of Jesus. The Father's voice comes from heaven. The Son is there ready to accept His anointing and the Spirit descends on Him like a dove, empowering him for his ministry of his humiliation and ultimately his glorification. We see the Trinity everywhere in Scripture. And that helps us understand that all of redemption is a Trinitarian act. It's something that's done all together. And this helps us also understand and protects us from heresies against the Trinity. If you look down at this last point, at point five, there, is one her there are many heresies against the Trinity, but one we're going to talk about specifically is this heresy called modalism. And modalism, if you read, it is a heresy that denies the doctrine of the Trinity. Many popular preachers today, people you see on TV, they believe in modalism, even though you may not hear it in their preaching. And modalism denies that God exists at all times in three distinct persons. And rather, it teaches that God is one, but he appears in three different modes, manifestations at different times. So modalism believes that in the Old Testament, God was the Father. And then in the New Testament, God became the Son. And then now, in the New Covenant, God became the Spirit. But modalism denies that when the Son was on earth, that the Father was in heaven. 
still seated on the throne. One professor puts it as what God is doing in modalism is that he puts on a mask. He puts on the father mask. And then when he needs to come to earth, he takes off the father mask and puts on the son mask. And then now when he leaves, he puts on the spirit mask. And let me ask you this. Where does that come from? Where does that idea come from? It definitely doesn't come from the Bible, right? But I would say this, that even heresy, most heresies, especially in the ancient church, they come from genuine doubt from genuine questions. And I want to warn us against this kind of error, which is starting with ourselves. How can God, as one God, exist simultaneously as three persons? How is that possible? How can the Father and the Son and the Spirit, although they are one, exist at one same time? And I'm sure that the way modalism started was not like someone was like scheming in their basement saying, Haha, I'm going to introduce this false doctrine to lead Christians astray. I don't think that's how it started. I think it started with a genuine doubt. Okay, that doesn't compute in my mind. Can I exist at three different times at the same place and times simultaneously? No. But the danger there is you put God into your category. You start with yourself, saying, I couldn't exist simultaneously as three persons at the same time. So God can't either. Oh, what the Bible means is that God exists, God is one, that there is the Father, Son, and Spirit, but they exist at three different times in three different modes. Do you see how that kind of makes sense? I think about that, I'm like saying, I can see where they're getting this. They're just making it fit with our human reasoning. But like we said, we don't do that with God. We definitely don't do that with the Trinity. If you look, why is it wrong? Modalism is wrong because simply it denies the scriptures. The scriptures are clear that God is one, but also affirms that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct persons, distinct persons who exist at the same time. We just said at Jesus' baptism, the Father, Son, and Spirit are all present. Why is it dangerous? Let me give you actually um, a professor like, that I was listening to. He was saying something really good. If modalism is true, and if it's true that God, the one God, has three persons, exists as three persons, but he does it in distinct times and modes, then what that means is that who is the God that exists right now? It's not the Father, because that was in the OT, and it's not the Son, because that was in the NT. So that means it's who? The Spirit. But this professor, this, he was saying, if modalism is true, and it's only that right now God is the Spirit who is with us on the earth, that means Hebrews 8 is false, and there is no Son for you right now in heaven interceding for you. Think about that. One of the things that I love about our QPEM service is whenever we do the, the, the time of repentance, and the elders come up and they say, Christ died. Christ lived for you. Christ rose for you. And he said, and they say, Christ prays for you. Do you know why you wake up every day sustained in your faith? It is because Christ, the Son of God, is at the right hand of God praying for you that your faith may not fail. Just as he prayed for Peter, even though Peter denied Christ three times. Remember what Jesus says to him, that Satan came to sift you but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Every day, that is what Satan is doing. Satan is, is compared to a lion. 
And Satan's goal in life is to bring our souls down to hell and feast upon them, consume them. That is Satan's goal and his ministry. And the only reason you are protected and you are not sifted when Satan comes to sift you is because Christ is at the right hand of the majesty on high and he prays for you by name each and every moment, praying that your faith may not fail. One of the, one of the great, like the, one of the guys that we have the Bible plan named after, right? The McCain Bible plan. He says a quote, something along the lines of, if I heard a thousand people praying for me, I would be so strengthened. I'll be so firm. And yet, Christ is praying for us now, right? Especially if you grew up in the Korean culture, you know like the prayer warrior vibe, right? Some of you have moms, grandmas, grandpa, who are prayer warriors, they pray for like four or five hours a day. Imagine if like you had something coming up and then you knew that like KPCQ says, we're having a thousand person gathering, we're having a prayer meeting for hope tonight. Hopefully hope will feel very like strengthened and uplifted. That will be enough to give you some peace. Christ is praying for you right now. He prays for you by name. That your soul will be saved each and every day. You'll be protected from the evil one. And if modalism is true, and Christ is not existing right now as God, but rather it is only the Spirit who is existing as this manifestation of God, then Christ is not praying for you. Do you see why it's important? Even on a very simple biblical scale, we must get the Trinity right. Or else our salvation is at risk. And I want us to really grasp again what we're saying here. This might seem like a contradiction, being one and three. It may. I'm sure other religions may say that's a contradiction. But again, what this comes down to is will we submit to the scriptures? Will we let God tell us who he is? Or will we try to fit him into the box of our own minds? If you look at that last point, why is it dangerous? For the reason I said, but also because it does not lead people to the God of the Bible. It leads people to a counterfeit God that is easier to understand and believe because it fits into our human understanding. Modalism denies what the Bible says about God, what God is saying about himself. It lets us decide who God is rather than God telling us who he is. If you remember that example I had, earlier in the doctrine of scripture about that dark room and we feel all these different things, we don't know what it is, but what if that thing were to speak and tell us what it is, who he is? And that is what we have in the scriptures. God tells us these things. He tells us this mystery. And I wanna close with this very important note that everything we know about God, all of the things we talked about right now, that this is what we call analogous Language. And this is a note that we're going to end on and just some food for thought. What does it mean when you say God is your father? What does it mean when we say that God is the father of Jesus? Is that the same way that your father is the father of you? No, right? It's not like Christ was created. We don't believe that. Right? God is an uncreated being. So we have to understand that as much as we're saying all these words, we're talking about persons of subsistences and essence. Again, these words are not in the Bible written. They're not, we're not taking them, but we're deriving them from the Bible. 
And if it's any consolation, if it hopefully this is helpful for us and edifying, these are the words and phrases and the understanding we've had of God for centuries in the church. This is not like a recent invention or thought. This is stuff that the church has believed since the earliest church. Since the church, very not even that far after when Jesus ascends into heaven. Not even far after the time of the apostles, with the early church fathers. This is the language we've used. And this is the conception we've had of God. And yes, all of our understanding is analogous. We understand God by way of analogy. So when we, ta- when we say that God is three persons, and that there is one essence, we have to understand this is our creaturely understanding of God. We don't really know what it is like in the true one-to-one sense. We can't. Because God is divine. God is transcendent. And yet, it is true. Our knowledge of God is true. Right? It's not one-to-one meaning it's perfect, but it's true meaning it really tells us something about the nature and the essence and the being of God by way of analogy. And we want to be careful not to import our own understanding into this language. John Calvin says, when God speaks to us, It is like a nurse speaking to a baby, right? He uses the word, it's like God is lisping to us. He can't speak to us full force because we're creatures, but God lisps when he speaks to us. A better word is God is babbling. It's almost like baby talk. Now that doesn't lower the integrity of what we're learning, but it helps us understand that even all of these things are so lofty. And yet God condescends to us in scripture to teach us these things truly so we may know him more. And now from this understanding, we have the gospel, we have salvation, we have the church, and we have eternal life from the Father in Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I hope if this is your first time learning these things, again, you might say, I get it, but that's okay. As long as you get it, the but That will come later. I will say that even to this moment, and probably for the rest of my life, I always have the, uh, but it it comes. Again, we are dealing with mystery here. And now it's really on us. Are we going to now, you know, push and question and stretch and try to fit God into our understanding? Or will we say, this is the mystery of who God is. And I will draw the line here. This is who God says he is in scripture. And now I will bow at his feet and worship him in awe and reverence for who he is. That a God like this, the triune God, one God, three persons, that they would be so full of grace and love and joy that would overflow unto creatures like us, undeserving, sinners even more. And that is our hope that we have in this life and in the next. Are there any questions? That's where we're going to end off today. Ending right on nine. Any questions? I will do my best to answer them. If I can't, I will get back to you in like a week or so after careful deliberation. Any questions in person? No, never, 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 never. Deacon Levy, any questions? Um, yeah. Here we go, here we go. Your boy Lynn asked. Okay, here we go. What? I think he might have missed out on that. What? Uh, Lynn asked, what can you, de- can you define? It's to define essence? Yeah. 
The way I put it for us, which I think is the most simple way, when we talk about essence, I'm not gonna talk about essence like human essence, like in general, but when we talk about essence, when we're talking about God and the distinct persons and the divine essence, we're talking about Godness. That's what Kevin DeYoung says. Um, he's a, he's a uh, famous pastor. He says, when we think about essence, when we think about God, think Godness. What makes God God? Right? All three persons share the same essence, meaning that they share the same godness. That's what it says, right? None is more divine than the rest. Now, godness is not an orthodox phrase, but I also think it's not that confusing to understand. So that's what we mean by essence. What makes God God? And what makes God God is shared exhaustively by all three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Yes. Any other questions? Yeah. Yes. Neva, okay. Uh, Neva says, she already like broke it up, so it's like, well. Okay. She says, she's all about the mystery of God, but <laughs> how do you reconcile Isaiah 9 6 when you say the Father is not the Son? Isaiah 9 6 says that Thank you. the child will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Hmm. Her question is that then is how important is it for us to get the distinction right every time? Mm. Uh, so Neva asked, first question was Isaiah, she talked about Isaiah 9 6. It says, For us, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. Of course, we're talking about Jesus Christ. Again, here's an important thing. When it says, for, us to, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, would we say that this is the Spirit? No. This is the Son. We're talking about Jesus Christ, right? The incarnate Lord. And it says, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's a really good question. So if you see the, excuse me, discrepancy there, well, how is it that Jesus, the son, who is the child that is born, his name is called Everlasting Father? That's a good question. Um, hmm. That's a good question. Let me get back to you. I'm sure, hmm. Clearly, like we said, this is a prophecy, Isaiah's prophecy, talking about the son, about Christ coming. This is a very famous Christmas passage, and then it's saying his name should be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Um, a question that I've been asked by kids, by like young kids all the time is like, if Jesus is God, this is a, a classic one, if, G if the Father is God and Jesus is God, then is God his, is, the fa is Jesus his own Father, right? That's a classic, right? If Jesus is God and the Father is God, then is Jesus his own Father? Uh, there's a little vibes of that. How can the Son be called the Everlasting Father? I will get back to you, and I will post that answer in the Facebook group for everyone else. The second question that Neva had was, how important is it for us to get the distinctions right? Um, it's very important. It's very important because, like I said, God is God, right? If I went around telling you that my wife's birthday is on December 8th, that would be really bad because her birthday is on May 25th, right? It's important to get things right about people that you claim to love, and people that, for us, especially as Christians, God is the one that we pursue. So is it important to get these distinctions right about, you know, giving glory unto the Son for what He's done for us in redemption? Yes, right? Now, if you go out there and 
You, I've, I've heard people say before, like, there are three gods. Is that a complete heresy? Yes. But, you know, what does it happen time to time? Yes. It, I, it happened while I was talking to P. Nate this morning. It slips out. Again, it's confusing. But um, when you, here, let me give you a practical example. When you pray, who should you pray to? Should you pray to God, the one? Or should you pray to the Father or the Son or the Spirit? Right? Is it important to get those things right? Should you pray to the Son at all? Should you pray to the Spirit? And, and I think it's important for us to understand that even things like that, we are called to pray and come to God in the name of the Son or to come to God through the merit and the blood and the righteousness of Christ. But I don't think it's like super crucial. Like it's not like, it's not like a PC thing. It's only correct to pray to the Father. Even though Jesus says to bring your requests to the Father, right? I think you can pray to God as long as you're remembering and acknowledging that that what we were saying earlier, that when you think about the one, you're surrounded by the three, surrounded by the greatness of the three. And then when you try to contemplate the three, you're brought back and carried back to the idea of God as one. Right? So when we're talking about, again, like let's say in a sermon, you say something like, you talk about this whole thing and your big crescendo is like, the father died for you. That is incorrect. So you don't want to get that wrong. But if it's more along the lines of like, oh, I've been praying to Jesus instead of to the Father, that's something where, again, as long as you understand the oneness and the threeness, I don't think it's that big of a deal. But you don't want to say like, it is the, the Son who applies salvation to you. No, that's the Spirit, right? Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Is that all of Neva's question? That's all of Neva's question. Pastor Peter elaborated on her on the question. Okay. So, um, you can elaborate on the question. He, he uh, helped answer it. Because, mm -hmm. um, in the ESV study Bible, Okay. All right, well, Pastor Peter says, um, in the ESP study, the Father here is a benevolent protector, the task of the ideal king. Mm. Also, the way God cares for his people, this is not the tr Trinitarian title Father for the Messiah, rather it is portraying him as a king. Mm. Yeah, so that's important to understand, too. Um, we talked about analogous language. All of our understanding of God is what we call anthropomorphic, anthro meaning man. So we, under, we relate to God and we describe God in human terms. So when we talk about God as Father, you might not be referring to the Father as the first distinct person of the Trinity. You might be referring to the one God as the Father to Israel or the Father to his people. So again, uh, to, sorry, this is a long one answer. Distinctions are important, yes. We want to get them right, yes. Um, should you feel like eternally sad and like scared of damnation if you get things wrong? No. And that's why we're doing this class, right? We're trying to clarify, we're trying to clear up our distinctions and understand. And we want to, of course, attribute glory to the right person. We want to attribute the glory of the cross to Christ. And yet, because the Father, Son, and the Spirit are intertwined and they are interpenetrating and one God, when we glorify Christ, we glorify the Father and we glorify the Spirit. Right? It's actually the Spirit. In John 14, it says that the Spirit's mission is to glorify the Son. Now, does that mean the Son is elevated above the, the Father or the Spirit? No, it means that, or, or the Spirit, yeah, it means that there is a shared glory because of that oneness. So yes, distinction is important, um, and that's why we're doing this class, if that answers the question. Minji had a question, Rumi had a question, and then we'll finish up with anything else. Yes? Uh-huh. If we pray to just God or just refer to God, then why do we pray in the name of Jesus? Okay, uh, okay I don't want to be too long-winded in the answer. We pray in the name of Jesus, right? Jesus says 
he literally says to ask, to ask the Father in my name, right? But Jesus also says that he actually tells us as his children that we don't have to go to the Father behind him or through him. As if it's like we're scared little children, we have no merit of our own, but the only way we can ask God the Father is if we come standing behind Jesus' shoulder and say, can you ask him for this? No, we have access to the Father through Christ. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus. We're saying that everything is heard by God. Our prayers are lifted to God and He hears them and He answers them. Why? Because we're coming in the merit and the worth and the righteousness of Christ. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus. Now, when, why do we pray to God? Again, like I said, that's something we should think about. When you pray, say, dear God, who are you praying to? I'm sure for many of us, we're not intentionally thinking, oh, I'm praying just to the Father, right? So to answer your question, why do we pray? If we just pray to God, then why do we end in the name of Jesus? We pray and come to the Father in the name of Jesus because that is the basis of our coming to God and our acceptance before God. Um, but we pray to God because, of course, God is the one who hears us. And yet, like I said, when we pray to God, it is completely okay to just think about God and his oneness. But hopefully... After this class, when you pray to God in his oneness, you'll start thinking about his threeness. And you'll say, thank you, God, for this day. And you'll think about the three, and you'll say, thank you, Father, for choosing me before the foundation of the earth. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me on the cross. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for sanctifying me and growing me in holiness. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Okay, Rumi, question? So when I pray, how do I discern? Hmm. <laughs> oh snap that's a good question the roomie said when i pray it's the funny thing is that i've done this doctor class before and it's the same exact questions that come out i don't think my answers were good either that time roomie said if when we do pray how do we know how do we discern uh, if we should be praying and attributing things to the father or to the son or the spirit um I don't want to say that this is like a non-issue or it's not important. It definitely is because, again, it reflects our understanding of God as triune. Um, I don't want to give like personal anecdotes, but for example, like when I ask, like when I'm asking for like God to change my heart, right, to sanctify my heart, whether it's like uh, in whether if it's like I have like hatred towards someone or I'm unable to forgive someone. Oftentimes, for me, understanding. Um, Within the Godhead, what is the role and distinct ministry of each? A lot of times for things like that, I'll ask the Holy Spirit to change my heart, right? Ezekiel 37, it says, God, he promises to give us a new heart and a new spirit. And we know that it is the spirit that lives inside of us, right? Sanctifying us, cleansing us, helping us to walk and grow in the fruit of the spirit. Now, can you pray that and ask the Father to change your heart? Of course you can, right? Could you ask? It's not like it's like... It's not like you do the prayer and then it's like, change my heart. And then you send it to the Father. And then you say, oh, wrong person. And then he puts him in this Holy Spirit. and then he ends. No, it's nothing like that, right? We don't want to dichotomize it too much. But, sorry, for the principle, take away the principle that it's important for us to distinguish that the three persons have distinct roles, not only in redemption, but even in our lives now, right? For example, what is the ministry of the Son of God right now? It is an intercessory mediation right he is praying for us he is mediating for us on behalf of us on for us right at the right hand of god so in that sense we understand that the son is doing something distinct but what is the spirit doing is the spirit praying and mediating for you no the spirit is within us renovating our hearts cleansing us of sin and giving us the power to fight against sin does that make sense so i don't want to mislead you don't think that you need to like be super accurate be like 
who is this, who am I sending this to? It's more the principle of understanding that the three persons have distinct roles actively in your life. Does that make sense? So discerning, uh, I would say that there are small like micro categories of discerning. Like I said, like you shouldn't, when you pray, you shouldn't thank, like say, thank you Holy Spirit for dying on the cross. You know what I mean? So more of things like that, not so much like God changed my heart, uh, who do I pray that to? But it's more like attributing to Christ what he's done for us, now asking the Spirit to do what the Spirit's doing in us. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Fair answer or? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I saw one that I don't, I don't know how valid it is, but it was telling me to like consider God as like the one who's behind the purpose, the, the one who created the intent. Okay. Jesus as being the power behind Interesting. Okay, okay. Sure, sure. I think, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, what are the roles? Right. I know the roles in terms of history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and like in my active life, like if I want to be like, change my heart, mm-hmm. in what, how, I'm trying to picture in my head, like, in what, in which, in what, in, in what role does that, does, does one of those Right, right. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in case the mic didn't pick up, Rumi was saying that she had read something earlier about like, the father is the one who like creates the pr- intent of the prayer and then the son and like all these things. Uh, I would counter that by saying, don't forget that when you pray, you're praying to a person, right? It's relational. The heart of prayer is relational. Even repentance is relational. So we don't want to um, narrow God down to like, oh, the father is like putting the prayer in my heart. And then the son is the one by whom the prayer goes up to God. And then the spirit does this, this. We want to remember like when you pray, you're talking to someone. You're having like a real lifetime conversation. So again, that's why it's important to distinguish between the three persons because that will help us first remember that we're talking to persons, right? To people, to a living God, one God, three persons. So uh, again, this was important. I, I don't want to backtrack on any of this, but I don't want us to get so lost and like, oh, have I been praying to the wrong person? No, you can just pray to God. Again, and my hope is not so much that you're so focused on like, who is this going to? It's, we pray to God, the one God, and now I hope as you contemplate the one God, you will start to contemplate his threeness. And then also as you contemplate the threeness, be surrounded by the oneness. Does that make sense? So that's, I, I hope, important for what you said. Remember, you're praying to persons. Right, to, it's a real prayer, you're talking to a real person. It's not like God is just like importing these things, right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Levi, you want to end with questions? Um, Neva had a follow-up, but I told her to email you. Okay, thank you. Neva had a follow-up email. I will get that answer out for the Isaiah 9-6 and whatever the follow-up is. Anything else? Um, just Lynn and Neva going back and forth. Okay, <laughs> okay. Then we will, we will let that slide for now. If you, if you have questions that you really want answered, feel free to message. If the answers I gave were not satisfying, again, feel free to email. I would love to talk to you. I mean, uh, Highland knows she asked me a question and she got like an 18 paragraph essay. So be wary, but I promise I will try my best and really put my time, love, and care into that uh, response. So if you have questions again, please let me know. Uh, and we will end it here. Thank you everyone for coming. Again, as always, this is the end of unit two. Like I said, usually when I teach this unit, I usually go in one go or break it in half. We split it into three. 
I hope it was helpful and intentional. You might have more questions than you came up, came in with, but again, if you are confronted by the mystery of God and His divinity and His personhood and His essence, um, it's a good place to be. And again, as Christians, I don't want you, I don't want us to think that, oh, I have this doubt now. Maybe I'm like not really strong in my faith. No, the way I like to see doubt is doubt is just a canvas is a blank canvas and what gets painted on that is just faith. As we wrestle with truths, as new truths come and wrestle with old truths and they collide, we'll see that God, He sanctifies even our minds and our theology and all that's produces more faith. There might be questions, yes. There might be doubts, yes. That's human. And yet, we take God at His word and He is faithful to do that work in us to build up our faith. So, we're going to go into Doctrine of Man. I'm actually very excited. I love teaching on Doctrine of Man because we get to talk about how sinful we are and it just highlights how amazing God's grace is. So um, please continue to join us. Again, if you haven't, follow up and the videos are up and the Facebook podcast is up as well. So let's close here in prayer. Let's pray. Um, God, we thank you again for this time. And as we talked about earlier, God, we, as we now contemplate and think about the oneness of God, that there is only one true God, we cannot help but feel surrounded by the threeness, by the distinction of the three persons. And as we try to think now about the threeness of God, we cannot help but feel carried back to the oneness. God, you are a triune God. You are one God, a simple, undivided essence. And yet you are three distinct persons. And we thank you for the glory that you reveal to us in Scripture. And we thank you that into this triune fellowship, that this love and this joy that you share completely contained within yourself, that you would find it in your heart and you would count the cost so that we may join into that fellowship, that we may have just a relationship with you and experience the joy and the love um, that is only found in God. So we pray that you would help us to um, go home. I know, God, we've Learn many things, many lofty things, and help us protect our hearts from doubt, protect our hearts from discouragement, and help us um, to really understand that, God, that the mystery that we face of who you are, um, yes, that it is too lofty for us to understand, and yet uh, it brings us in humility, God, to your feet, asking for your wisdom, asking for more faith to believe. And we pray that as we've learned these things, that it would, again, not make us just smarter sinners, but that we will leave this place more awe of who you are, that we will leave in awe knowing that, God, you are not like us, that you are so other from us. And yet, and yet, God, you have gone out of your way. You have loved us. You have set your affections on us so that we may have this portion that is you. God, thank you for this time. Bless us as we um, rest, as we log off the Zoom chat and go home and all these things. Help us to pray tonight, grateful. Um, for this knowledge that we can have of you. We thank you, Lord. We love you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining. We will see you next week.